Love it. Well, that's right. We are continuing our series, Bad Advice Tonight. Welcome friends in the room, friends in Fort Worth and in Houston and in Spring and El Paso and Tulsa and tuning in wherever you are. Uh, has anyone ever heard of the term a sneezer before? Uh, it, it's a business term. And, and here's what I know. You may not know what that word means, but you know someone who is a sneezer. I'll tell you what a sneezer is. A sneezer is someone who spreads ideas or experiences or things that they really like like a, like a virus or a contagion. Like they're the kind of person, everyone knows a guy who's a sneezer. Everyone knows a girl or a guy who's a sneezer. They're the kind of person who when they experience something they really like, they gotta tell everybody in the world about it. Like, hey, I have this toothpaste. I don't care what toothpaste you're using. This is the greatest toothpaste of all time. You gotta change this toothpaste. They're the kind of person that like spreads this restaurant. You gotta try it. They have the best appetizer you've ever ate before. You gotta go to this person. They seem to always have a guy for something. They're like, oh man, you're looking for a mechanic. Look, I got somebody. I, I can take care of you. There's the best mechanic in the entire DFW area, tri-state, you got to go see him. He's the best. See his reviews on Yelp. They're the person who knows everything or they seem to have a strong opinion on just about everything that it seems like. They're uh, uh, really common. Everybody, anybody know someone who's like this? Like they just kind of like, they got to tell you about uh, uh, the different experiences that they've had or this new uh, restaurant and this new hotel or whatever thing that they've done. Here's why I appreciate sneezers, because I am totally a sneezer. For whatever reason, it's like hard for me to not share. Like when I, I'm the, totally the guy who's like, dude, I have the best dentist. I don't care who your dentist, oh, it's your dad. Hey, look, this guy's better than your dad. And uh, whatever it is, it's just easy, it overflows. Like when I went on my honeymoon, uh, we, went and we went to this amazing hotel or this amazing resort in, uh, in Mexico, came back from it. And of course, I was like, man, I gotta tell everybody in the world, I work with young adults who are getting married all the time. And there is one option in the world for you people that I need to make sure that everybody knows about the greatest thing that you're ever going to experience in terms of a honeymoon. It's just easy. It kind of overflows and pours out. And, uh, and if you're a sneezer in the room, you know what I'm talking about. It's just part of your personality. Now, it, as easy as it, is, as it is to talk about virtually anything, there's one category that for me, it's not as easy to bring up and it's not as easy to talk about. Faith. I mean, despite the fact that, yeah, I'm a pastor, secrets out. When I'm outside engaging with people or talking to neighbors or different things, that unlike other, other arenas or other conversation starters or other topics, for me, when it comes to talking about faith, there's just something where it's a little bit more sensitive of the subject, a little bit more delicate. It's a little harder for me to move into that conversation. In other words, I'm not, there's natural evangelists out there. For me, sharing my faith is more like a discipline. It's something I have to be intentional about and mindful about. There's natural evangelists like JP, who every time I'm around him at a meal or dinner or any place that he goes, he's always sharing his faith. He's the guy that shares it literally with everybody. He'll bump into a coffee machine. Coffee machine, trust Christ. He's the guy who shares it with anybody (laughs) and everybody. And for me, that's just not my story. I I, uh, have to be more intentional and more to work on. And here's why. Because unlike when you're talking about a dentist or about, um, you know, your favorite place to shop for clothes or store or the best deal or this website that you got to check out, unlike all those different things where you could talk about, when it comes to the topic of faith, those other things are not offensive. But there's something when you bring up the idea of Jesus or faith, religion, where all of a sudden there's just a heightened sensitivity that everybody else feels, where people can get offended or we're afraid we're going to offend someone in a way that uh, those other topics typically don't. And here's why. Because of the bad advice we're going to talk about tonight. That we live in a world who has been uh, saturated, or we as Americans live in a culture that's been saturated with the bad advice tonight, which is don't impose your beliefs on people. 
that you and I, you can't impose your beliefs on people. You shouldn't impose your beliefs on people. You shouldn't impose your faith or religion on people. And tonight we're going to explore why that is such bad advice. Not only uh, from the verses that we're going to see, but, but for those of us who are Christians in the room, it's bad advice just from the words of Jesus who says, man, to not impose your beliefs, don't hide behind the lie of that bad advice. You are the light of the world. You are the light of your apartment complex, your workplace, the cubicle. that You are the light of your family if you're a believer, if you're a Christian. Tonight, we're going to talk about Christians and explore why it is such bad advice if you buy the lie that you should not impose your beliefs on the world around you, on those who live near you, those who work by you. Specifically, we're gonna see from the Apostle Paul why that's such bad advice and how we share our faith or what is the method by which we share our faith. We're gonna be in Acts chapter 17 where Paul lays out as clear as any other place uh, through his own life and his example, his motivation for sharing his faith, the method that he uses to share his faith, and the mixed reactions that always happen anytime you share faith. Because this is further what I know. 80%, 80%, a recent poll came out and said 80% of people who are Christians. So if you're a Christian talking to you in the room, say, hey, man, I trust in Christ. 80% of Christians say, man, I have a personal responsibility before God to share my faith. And the same poll found that the vast majority of those has said that not, not only do I believe I'm supposed to, but I haven't any time in recent history. Within the last six to 12 months, I have not shared with anybody. So there's some great divide that exists for many of us, and that was an American, a USA poll, as it relates to the Christian church that they believe I should share, I just don't. And tonight we're gonna look at why that's such a tragedy and how we can overcome it. We're gonna be in Acts chapter 17. If you have a Bible, flip there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts. And uh, let me set the scene. Acts is essentially the story of the early church. So Jesus leaves, and the uh, book of Acts is all about the apostles in kind of the early church days. And it's um, the apostle Paul, who was the uh, uh, uh artist formerly known as Saul, who spent the first half of his life trying to kill Christianity, stop Christianity, uh, meets Jesus and spends the next half of his life trying to spread Christianity. Here's what's going on in Acts chapter 17. Paul has been hanging out. He's been spreading the message of Jesus all over the place, all over the ancient world. He's in Athens. He's waiting for a couple friends. He's hanging out in the city of Athens. And that's where our story's gonna pick up. Here's all you gotta know about Athens. Athens uh, was like the cultural hub of the day. It was the religious hub of the ancient world. It was a port city. It was a uh, city of incredible influence. The Olympics started there. Western philosophy started there. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all those you know, guys that you heard about once in philosophy class years ago. All those guys were from the city of Athens. And Paul shows up, and what he sees inside of the city moves him to act. So here's where we're gonna pick up the story. Verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed, so he's waiting for his friends, and he's greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. That Paul looks around inside of the city of Athens, and all of a sudden, and the word distressed is like a heart-wrenching. But he looks around and sees idols everywhere. We know from other writings of the day that there were 25 to 30,000 idols inside of Athens. There was, it was a common saying that it's easier to find a god than a man in Athens. So Paul looks around everywhere he looks, he sees these different gods or false idols to these different things that they worshiped. And here's what happens. So this distressing moves him and he does something. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. So Paul moves to act 
this distressing moves him to begin having these different conversations with people. And he begins reasoning with them about their faith and about what he believes in Jesus. And all of a sudden, this debate happens. A group of Epicureans, which is like a, uh, a class of people, be like uh, the uh, Republicans or Democrats, or it's kind of a, a group that's known, identified by this belief. Epicureans, here's all you need to know about them. There are people who like believed there is no afterlife. Um, they essentially, they and Drake would get along, live by the motto, YOLO, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. So Epicureans are there and Stoics who essentially live by CrossFit, that like life is about discipline. (laughs) They begin to debate with Paul. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. That Paul shows up and he sees this city full of idols and he sees everywhere that he looks, these different gods that they're worshiping. And all of a sudden, because he knows the one true God, he's moved not to begin to like go pick at Athens and be like, we're gonna boycott this city. And he's not Snapchatting, can you believe these crazy people? He's moved to begin to share his faith with those in the marketplace. He begins to reach out and talk about Jesus and the resurrection. Why would Paul feel like he has the right to share with these people? Because Paul knew, and Paul was driven by a motivation that it is not loving to know the truth about Jesus, to know the truth about eternal life and to not share it with people. That Paul was driven or his motivation, just like our motivation, is that of compassion. The reason why Paul looks around at a city that's full of idol worship, that has all kinds of different gods that they're worshiping and doesn't go, ah, yeah, teach his own, it'll be okay. The reason why he doesn't do that is because he's moved with compassion that I know the one true God and it would be unloving for me to sit here silent and to not share my faith. Paul, our first idea from the text, his motivation, just like ours, is compassion. The motivation that believers have, if you and I are ever gonna move to share faith, or the motivation that should move us to share faith is that of compassion, that like Eminem said, there's a place called heaven and a place called hell, and everyone will spend eternity at one of those two places. That everyone lives forever somewhere. That every person, red, yellow, black, and white, every person you've ever interacted with, the person who bags your groceries, the person in the apartment complex above you, the person that sits next to you at work, every person in your family, immediate and extended, everyone you've ever been eyeball to eyeball with is someone who will spend and live eternally, either in heaven or in hell. And this moves Paul, because he knows the only way that a person can have eternal life and experience eternal life in heaven is by trusting what Jesus did on the cross in his death and resurrection, that it's not by being a good person. Paul knows the only way that a person can live eternally in heaven and not eternally in hell is by trusting what Jesus did on the cross. It would be so unloving for me to keep my mouth shut and it moves Paul to begin to open up his mouth and talk. I mean, what greater motivation could a group or an organization have for their mission than the church? Than the fact that, like, man, every person that you've ever been, uh, you've ever interacted with is someone who not only Jesus died for, but that will live forever with God or forever apart from Him. What greater motivation? Like, a lot of groups have different motivations. Like, if you're a teacher, you have a motivation to, like, hey, get these kids educated so I can pay my bills. If you're a person who is in sales, you're like, man, I'm, I'm motivated to, to uh, get more money. Or maybe you're in construction and motivated to complete a job. The Apostle Paul shows us the greatest motivation is that of the one that everyone lives forever somewhere. And so how can I not share? I was in uh, Africa um, a number of years ago and I, and I spent essentially a summer in Africa. And while we were there, we were in this like East 
um, Ugandan village. It was super remote. Like we're, we are uh, no electricity, no water in this village doing um, some kind of orphanage stuff. And, and like, I mean, deep. Uh, we're in the bush. You know where the bush is? We're there. And so we are super remote and we're hanging out with the villages and we're there for about a month. And uh, while we were there, one of the villages said, hey, I want to have you guys come over and, uh, and, and essentially have something to eat and drink with us. We go into this guy's house, get there, I walk in the door, he hands me an ice cold Coke, Coca-Cola. And I'm like, dude, where, where, how could this possibly be here right now? Like it is a cold Coke. There's no refrigerators anywhere around here. What sort of magic trick has this man played? Where could this possibly have come from? Here's how it got there. The guy had bought it, or bought it, bought it from a, <laughs> I need you educators. You guys didn't do your job, teachers. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the guy had bought it. There was someone in the village who every single day would sell these Coca-Colas. How did he get the Coca-Colas to begin to sell to the villagers? He would go on his bike and he would ride his bike and he would meet uh, with a cooler. He would go pick up at this truck that would show up and go around to these different remote villages and he would hand off Coca-Cola. The guy would take the Coca-Cola on his bike. He would go around, he would sell. That's how he made a living. Now, so that's how we got the Coca-Cola there. Now, let me ask you this. What motivated Coca-Cola to get the product into the hands of East remote, random people all over the planet. People who will never even experience electricity, but they have Coca-Cola. Like what could have possibly led to the sequence of events that ended up with Coca-Cola being in this village? Here's what I mean. Well, I mean, was it the fact that like somewhere, some guy who made Coca-Cola was like, this is an incredible product. We got to, it's life-changing. I mean, this, the nutritional value here is incredible. We got to get it in the hands of every African out there, every person on the planet. We got to get it there. No, I mean, it's not the way Coke's like, we got to get it everywhere because it's a great, it's terrible for you nutritionally. And, and you can leave a nail in there for a few days and it'll like disintegrate. That can't be good, whatever that means. So it's not because of that reason. It's for one reason and one reason only, which is what? Money that in some C-suite somewhere, there's some CEO in some high-rise on the eighth floor going, we gotta get Coca-Cola in more places and more spaces in the hands of more people all over the planet. We're gonna fill the great commission of Coca-Cola. Every country in the entire world will have Coca-Cola. Why? For one reason, money. Little pieces of green paper with dead presidents on it. And this thing drives, and Coca-Cola, man, they have fulfilled almost their great commission. It's on every country on the planet except for Saudi Arabia and North Korea. All because of one motivation, money. How much greater is the Christian message? And Paul looks in the eyes of these Athenians and the reason he's even in Athens is because he believes there is a God who's out there. Every person that I'm surrounded by will live eternally somewhere, either in heaven with the God who created them, loved them, died for them on a cross, or eternally apart from him. And he is reaching out through the body of Christ and I am moved with compassion. It's unloving for you to stay silent while those around you wonder about the God who's out there. It's unloving to keep your mouth shut. And we live in a world that's like, man, it's, it's so judgmental and it's not loving for you to talk about your faith. Paul would say the opposite is true. And man, when I read the story of Paul, it's so convicting. Because man, like this was so real for him. Like he, he believed it and it impacted him at such a core level. His motivation, like it drove him all over the ancient world sharing his faith, unique, even among the disciples. Like all the apostles, like even when you look at ancient history, you study the church, like there's something about Paul, like he stands out even different from like Peter, James, and John. 
Like when you read the story, you read the book of Acts, you can see kind of the first few decades of the church and you see uh, just the places that these different guys went. You see where Peter, James, and John and, and kind of where they took the mission. All of them for the first couple decades, pretty much for the most part, just hang out in Jerusalem versus Paul who goes all over the place taking the message everywhere that he goes, all over the ancient world in Europe. Like almost as though like there was some meeting that took place with all the apostles together that we missed where they got together, all 12 in a room. Paul's standing there. He puts up a big map on the wall and he's like, all right, you guys got the whole world here. You guys take Jerusalem. I'll take everything else. Good? Like there was something where Paul just it grabbed hold of him. And while everyone else kind of hung around for the first couple of decades inside of Jerusalem, Paul went everywhere saying this is for every person because every person lives forever somewhere. And I have a motivation of compassion that they would know the risen Christ and the resurrection and Jesus. So Paul shares this and, and this creates kind of a stir in Athens. And so they take him before the elite of elite group. They begin to say, man, all right, hey, we've heard your message. We wanna make sure that they hear it. So here's what happens next, verse 19. Then they took him and they brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus. Areopagus is a word that means uh, the hill of Ares or Mars Hill, you may have heard it called before. It's essentially this hill that uh, these 30 men who made up kind of the Supreme Court of the day of Athens, these were the uh, high power individuals and they're kind of uh, over the city of Athens and they decide what religions can uh, be tolerated here and what's gonna happen and what can take place. And there's these 30 men who are the governing body. So Paul comes before them. Interestingly enough, this is the group that Socrates, if you know who that guy is, Socrates went before and for proclaiming foreign deities, Socrates was sentenced to death. So Paul goes before these guys and he's standing in what very likely could be a group that wants to have him killed, wants to have something happen and he doesn't shy away at all because Paul is straight thug life and he goes right into sharing the gospel. Here's what happens. He brought them before the Areopagus and they say, we want to know these new teachings that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So they said basically, hey, we wanna hear what you're bringing, what you're talking about in these foreign ideas. So then Paul launches into his TED talk, if you will, and takes the opportunity to share about his faith. Here's what happens. He stands up at the meeting, the Areopagus, and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. The unknown God, so basically what Paul just said is, hey, I walked around the whole city, you got a sun God, a moon God, a stars God, you got a sewage God, you got every kind of God out there, and then you have this one inscription that says, true story, they had a sewage God, and they have this one inscription that says, to an unknown God. And Paul realizes what, what of course, you would see is that they had this uncertainty that, man, we have all these different gods, but maybe we missed one. Maybe we missed one in case, like, there's some God we forgot to honor or worship and maybe he's gonna show up someday and be like, hey, I'm Bob. Hey, where's my idol? Where's the statue? There's nothing. And they're gonna go, oh, Bob, you're here. We just didn't know your name. This idol to the unknown God, this is for you. This is you. We knew you were there. We just didn't know your name. And Paul recognizes that you guys have all of these different expressions of worship, but you don't have any certainty. You admit at the end of the day, you, an idol to the unknown God, you're guessing you don't know the gods that are there are not there. And so you kind of are covering your bases by having this one. And he says, I know the name of the unknown God. 
I know the God that is there. And he launches again into this topic. He continues. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, which I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. So the God who is there, there's not a lot of gods, there's one God. And he does not live in temples made by human hands. So there's temples everywhere. And he's going, there's one God and he doesn't live in that building or in that building. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and history and the boundaries of their land. So not only is God great, God is intimately involved in the places and times in which humanity lives. Side note, God is intimately involved in where you live, the family you live in the time in which you live. Like, it is not an accident that you live in 2017. You may be like, no, my parents told me I'm an accident. You were not an accident to God, that he knows everything about it. He placed you exactly where he was, and he did it for a purpose. I love this verse. Why did God place people in the times and places where they are? God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us that God placed people when and where he did so that in hopes that the place that they live and the time where they live, they would reach out and find God and they would find, as Paul's about to tell us, that he's a God who's reaching back out towards them. And he quotes some of their own poets. I love this. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image made by human design and skill. Like, like in other words, hey, even your own poets, he quotes their own poetry, like Greek poets, people they would have known. He doesn't quote Deuteronomy. It'd be like quoting Jay-Z. It'd be like quoting him in there. I mean, that's exactly what it'd be like. He quotes these two Greek poets that would have known. He's like, look, even your own poets acknowledge the gods who are there are a whole lot bigger than these different little statues. In him we live and move and have our being. We're his offspring. If we're the offspring of God, we shouldn't think that we could create God. Even your own poets say that, hey, uh, God created us. Therefore, we can't just make a little statue and that's God. That's silly. And Paul just reasons with them and connects them or connects to them and the beliefs and the things that they believe. He continues. In the past, God has overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent the word repent is a little Greek word for change your mind. There's different times throughout scripture where depending on the context, it means, hey, turn from these actions that you're doing. And other times in scripture where based on the context, it's just a word for, hey, change the way you're thinking about it. Uh, Paul, in this context, is not saying, hey, you need to correct your behavior. He's saying you need to change the way you think about God, that God commands all people everywhere, that there isn't Zeus and Mars or Ares and all these different gods. There is one God who created the world and formed everything in it and commands all people to change the way that they think about him. Change the way that they think, many of them who think that God is demanding something from him, that God who's there is not served by human hands, but he loves to serve and he did so by coming in the form of Jesus and dying on a cross. Here's what he says. Commands all people, for he has said a day he will judge the world with justice by the man, that's Jesus. He is appointed and he has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. 
that Paul says God commands everyone everywhere to change the way that they think about the God who is there, who's not demanding something from them. He's not served by human hands, but he's done something for them. And he died and rose from the dead in their place. Paul lays out really in doing so, gives us a perfect model of the method by which we share our faith. So our motivation is compassion. That's why don't impose your beliefs is horrific advice. And the method by which we share our faith, Paul lays out. What's the method? Our method is that we connect and confront. The method by which we share our faith, just like Paul did, is you connect to those who you're talking with or sharing your faith with, speaking with, and then you confront them with Christ. You don't confront them with, why, man, you should change your sexual behavior, you should stop smoking that. You confront them with Jesus. Jesus alone is enough of a stumbling block. You point them to Christ and everything else will change or everything hinges on that. You connect first and then you confront. Paul's method is, hey, connect first, confront. How did Paul connect? Like he starts out, like think about this. He doesn't condemn their idol worship and be like, what, what are you guys doing? A sewage God? That's pathetic. He looks at them and compliments them. Hey man, I see you guys are religious. Like you're trying to figure this out. And I also see there's an unknown God and he seeks to connect. There's an arena you're not certain on. Not only does he do that, I mean, think about the fact that he even quotes from their own poetry. At some point, Paul cared enough about these Greek men and women to read their literature, study it, and use that as a springboard in a conversation that you seek first to connect and then move to Christ. The way that our method for sharing is we seek first to connect and then to confront. What does this look like for us? It just looks like asking questions. In the midst of trying to share our faith, it's just like, man, hey, what's your name? Where are you from? How long have you worked here? Um, what are you up to this weekend? Man, are you dating someone? How's that going? What's his name? And we just seek any way that we can connect with real life, caring for people, and use that as a springboard into a conversation about Jesus. I mean, there's, there's just different ways, man, especially around here where... Um, it has been so healthy for me. I love this place because if you hang around here long enough, you will learn different ways to jump into the conversation about sharing your faith. Whether it's like allowing someone's name to be a springboard, like, oh man, your name is Sarah. Awesome, Sarah. Hey, um, do you know where your name comes from? It comes from the story of a woman in the Bible who's married to Abraham. I actually worship the same God as Abraham and Sarah, the person who your name is from. Would you like to worship her? <laughs> him, him. I mean, it's just different ways where you can springboard into it in any direction that you go. Hey, uh, this weekend or last weekend, whatever weekend is Easter, um, do you know what your plans are? What are you doing on Easter? What do you believe happened at Easter? We just look for a way to connect. We look to, man, it's really stressful and someone's sharing about just the anxiety that they have about their job. Gosh, I get anxious sometimes too. Do you know what helps me when I'm anxious? And we just try to springboard into our faith. We connect with people wherever they are and then we confront and we confront them with Christ and let the message of Jesus and that alone be the turning point inside of the life. Just like Paul did where he says, look, I'm gonna share, I'm gonna connect with you and I'm not gonna shy away from speaking about the resurrection and the one savior of the entire world. Same thing for you and I. I uh, got to experience this a couple days ago where uh, I came home from work Getting sick, apologize. And uh, there was AT&T was in my driveway. There was a guy who was going door to door to uh, sell AT&T services and pull up and, and uh, we don't have AT&T and don't want AT&T. And uh, roll down the window and I'm like, what's going on, man? Hey, do you want to, you wanted to talk about AT&T? We're actually okay, we're good, thank you so much. But God bless you, man, it's hot out here. 
And, uh, and then I begin to pull the car up and he says, hey, hey, it is hot, man. You got any water? And, uh, and I look in the car and then he goes, I can wait. And, uh, and I was like, great, all right, well, I'll pull the car in. So I pull the car in, I go in, grab water, I come outside and, um, and give him the water and say, hey, what's your name? He said, Yusuf. And uh, I said, Yusuf, huh, what's that, where's that come from? He said, oh, it, it, it comes from the name Joseph. Hey, you laughed at the name thing, but this, it works. <laughs> Joseph, no way, man. Okay, are you a, uh, someone who is familiar with the story of Joseph? Are you a follower of Christ? And, uh, and we were into the conversation. And he began to say, no, I'm not. I kind of was raised in church, but honestly, man, I've done a lot of bad things and, and um, I, I can't say that I'm a Christian anymore. And, um, and I don't think that the God who's there would accept me. Uh, I've done a lot of bad stuff and I, I feel like I'm doing a lot of bad stuff. And I said, Yusuf, I don't know your story. I don't know what you're doing. Here's what I know. The message of Christianity is not as long as you're not a bad person, God will accept you. In fact, the message of Christianity is that the only ones who God will accept are those who acknowledge I'm not a good person. I'm not a good enough person to save myself. As good as I think I am, I'm sinful. And if I'm ever gonna experience a relationship with God, it's gonna be by grace through faith or by trusting in what Jesus did on the cross, paying for my sins, dying in my place and rising from the grave. Not by me trying to earn my way to God by being a good person. So I don't know what your story is, I don't know what you're involved in, but I know whatever it is, it won't keep you out of heaven if you trust in the one thing that will get you in, which is Jesus. And we began to dialogue and, and I said, have you ever heard that before? You know, you said you were raised in church. He said, no. And at some point, he, uh, he, we were just talking about Watermark and him coming here and he's like, man, I'm, I'm intrigued. I've never heard that message before. That is, uh, I wanna come. And, um, and we, he said, does your church, like do they program you to talk like this? And, uh, <laughs> Or tell me this, why did you share? And, uh, and what Yusuf needed to know is not that there's a God or a church that programs you, there's a God who programmed the world to work in a certain way. And it's God who's programmed every human heart to the reality that it will not find satisfaction, it will not find life apart from a relationship with that God who programmed it, who created the world, who created them to live in existence with him. And what I looked and said to Yusuf is, no, no, there wasn't a program. What moved me to share? Here's what I believe, Yusuf. I think the God of this world loves you so much that he brought you to this house right now and he made you thirsty so that you would want water. So that would bridge into a conversation about the God who hasn't given up on you, hasn't forgotten you, and who loves you enough to die in your place if you'll accept it you'll experience eternity with him forever and ever and ever. And he looked and he said, this is how I could tell he'd like been raised in church before. He goes, man, you have given me much more than water. You have given me, you have given me living water. <laughs> I was like, man, you have definitely been in Sunday school at some point. John chapter four is where that came from. And, uh, and he said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call you. I'm gonna come next Sunday. And so who knows? Um, but in sharing our faith, man, we seek to just connect. Sometimes it involves like meeting a, a physical need before being able to share on a physical need, but we seek to connect and then we confront just with Christ. We point people to Christ, not to our behavior, their behavior, any of those things. We confront them with Christ, connect and then confront them with Christ. Paul then goes into what happens when he shares this message uh, with these Athenians and what takes place in their response. Verse 32, when they heard the good news about Jesus, 
They fell on their knees and said, I believe in Jesus. He will save me forever. No, that's not there at all. You guys are not reading along with me. That, that's what we would think, or that's a lot of times what we think it would say. That's not what it says at all. Look at what happens. In other words, it's not something like, oh man, you share and all of a sudden everybody for sure, every time gets saved. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some sneered. <sighs> oh God, resurrection, okay. Some become critical. Others said, we wanna hear you again on this subject. But some were curious, like Yusuf. And at that, Paul left the council and some people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, one of the 30, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others that Paul shared. There were some who were critical, some who became curious. I just wanna hear more. And then some who converted. That any time that you and I share the message, our third idea from the text, so we have the motivation for sharing, the method by which we share, which is connect and confront to Christ, and then the mixed reactions that our message creates. We have a message that creates the message of Jesus. It just creates mixed reactions, just like in Paul's. If you ever share your faith, you go outside of this room, you're gonna share with different people in your family, different people you work with, different people you interact with. If you share your faith, they're gonna fall into three categories. The response that people have to the name of Jesus, they either are critical, oh, I don't need that, I don't believe that, I'm spiritual, man, I got my own way. They reject it, they're curious. Wow, you actually believe this. I don't think I've ever met a Christian who actually believes this, and they wanna hear more. They're critical, curious, and sometimes they convert. They trust in Jesus. That whenever we share the message of Jesus, there's mixed reactions that take place. That there's people who, man, when you share your faith, they're just, Jesus said, I came, Matthew chapter 10, that I came to bring division. That you should expect when you share your faith, some people are gonna hate you for it. They hated me first. Other people are like Yusuf, gonna be curious. And then sometimes, rarely, Man, they're gonna on the spot say, I trust in Jesus. Which for the most part, for a lot of us, at least from my experience, is, is very much the outlier. Outside of these doors, outside of like church and ministry and mission trips, when you're just interacting with people out uh, in public or strangers, when you share your faith, very rarely, at one time in the last eight years, has someone ever been like, man, I wanna trust Christ right now in this moment. But we're just planting seeds. Here's why this is important for you to know. Because if, as you share your faith, as any of us, if you're a follower of Christ, which you have a responsibility according to Jesus to do, as you share your faith, the measure of success is not which category did they fall into. The measure of success is sharing. In other words, like I think for a lot of us, if we were to come in the night and, uh, and I said, hey, what is a successful, uh, what would be success when it comes to sharing your faith? Like at the end of the day, like, hey, that was a win, put a W up on the board. Like, what would be a success? If everyone got an answer inside of their head of, oh man, what, what is successful when it comes to sharing your faith? I think a lot of us would go, if, if they like pray the prayer and trust Jesus right there. And Paul would say, no. It's not your job to save or my job to save. Success comes in sharing. Whatever the response, that a successful uh, success as it relates to sharing your faith in my faith is simply in sharing the message of Jesus. And let God do what only God can do, which is save people like Dionysus or create curiosity inside of the hearts of people and move them. Our job is not to save, it's simply to share. And Paul says, look, of course I'm gonna share my faith and I'm gonna let God determine the outcome. For most of us, man, and I have deep sympathy for this, 
But I think the reason why we don't share our faith is, is for one reason, or one word. <clears throat> you know what it is? Awkward. Or like, oh gosh, it's just, I don't know if I can do it. It's just gonna create a little awkward tension in the moment. It's gonna be awkward inside of that conversation. And what are they gonna think? They're gonna think I'm some weirdo and, and um, uh, just gonna make it weird around the office or it's gonna be awkward with this person and maybe they're gonna feel uncomfortable. I don't wanna make them feel uncomfortable and it's just too awkward. I don't wanna feel uncomfortable. And can you imagine having that conversation with the Apostle Paul? Like, wait a second, the reason you're not sharing your faith? I mean, Paul, who like suffered in 2 Timothy chapter two, he says, look, I will suffer anything to spread the message of Christianity. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, whatever they do to me, I will suffer whatever it is in order to move forward the message of Christianity because everyone lives forever somewhere. I need to get the message out to people. There's a God who loves them. He's not asking them to do something. He died for them in their place. And if they'll trust in him, they'll have eternal life. And he says, whatever it takes, I'll suffer anything. Second Timothy chapter two tells us. And, and when you go, man, what did Paul actually suffer? Though? Like, what was he really willing? You read the story and, and you see Paul in second Corinthians talks about some of the things that he suffered. And he says, I was whipped with a cat of nine tails, which is essentially a whip with metal spikes on the end. Five different times. Each of the different times, it was 39 lashes. That's how many times. So on five different occasions, I was whipped with these metal spikes on the end. Uh, someone who was uh, whipped with a cat of nine tails often was so permanently disfigured uh, that you couldn't even tell where the back would begin. Paul, five, many people didn't live. Five different occasions, he was whipped. Three chapters earlier, he's sharing the message of Jesus. The crowd gets angry at him, and they begin to pelt him with rocks or stone him. Not like stone, like... Yeah, but like stone him with rocks <laughs> to the point where they think he's dead and they drag him outside a city. And miraculously, at some point, he wakes up. Three different times, he says, I was shipwrecked. I mean, which is amazing. Like, he just kept getting on the boat. He's like, I don't care what it takes. I'm gonna get on that thing. Versus like, let me just take the camel, <laughs> okay? And uh, he's like, whatever it takes, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna spread the message. Whatever it costs me, I'm willing to suffer anything for the sake of God's people to get the message everywhere because everyone lives forever somewhere. And it's like embarrassing as Americans when you think of like if the Apostle Paul was here and he was like, guys, how's it going? You're sharing your faith? No, it's just, yeah, tell me about it. What are they, are they throwing you to lions? Are they throwing you in the dungeon? Are they trying to cut your head off? Are they whipping you? Is that what's going on? No, man, are they, uh, are they taking your family? Are they taking things from you? No, it's just, <clears throat> just awkward. <laughs> He'd be like, what? What does what that even mean? What is that? Modern form of torture that they've created? Like, you wouldn't even have a category for it. And yet, maybe because, man, we live in like the land of the free, our pain tolerance is so low. Some of us, the most godly thing we can do tonight is say, God, will you kill my fear of it being awkward? Will you kill the part of my heart that's afraid? That's not compassionate and not motivated by compassion towards people. Will you help me to seek to connect and care and confront people, not with my opinion and my political ideas, but with the gospel, with Christ alone? And will you help me in the face of mixed reactions to not lose heart, to see it as success, to allow you to stretch out your hand and save, and to see it as a success by just sharing the message of eternal life? There's only one way that they can experience that. Will you help me, Lord? And the most godly thing, I think, for most of us, because if any of the polls are accurate, then 80% of us would say we agree, the Christians in the room, and then the vast majority would say, yeah, we just don't do it. 
And so asking the God of angel armies, come win in this heart, come move this heart with compassion towards those around me who will never know the message of Christ apart from someone sharing it with them. In conclusion, our motivation is compassion. Our method is to connect and to confront with Christ and our message creates mixed reactions. We have this uh, expression in culture that um, essentially is like, hey, that's not a hill I would die on. And it's things like we hold loosely that, uh, hey, I, I think that you know um, the uh, warriors are better than uh, whatever, but you know, it's not a hill I would die on. I think that uh, Pepsi is better than Coke, but not a hill I would die on. I think for many of us, that's how your Christian faith is. That you're like, yes, I love Jesus, and sure, I, I think if you're asking me to share, and I, I like church and all this stuff, but, but it's not really, it's not a hill I would die on. Like, I'm, I'm not going to do it if it costs me anything. I'm not going to do it if it costs me relationships or friends or, or kind of makes me uncomfortable or I, I could lose my job over it. Like, it's not something, it's not really a hill that I would die on. And the Apostle Paul, 2,000 years ago, walks up Mars Hill, a hill. And he looks into the eyes of 30 men who literally hold his life in the balance. They very shortly or a few hundred years before had put to death Socrates for believing the exact same thing, proclaiming foreign deities, the exact same words. And he looks these men in the eyes and says, look, this is a hill I will die on. Not just Mars Hill and Aries Hill, but the hill of the reality and the truth that Jesus is the only way. There is one God out there. All of these other gods will fall. 2,000 years from now, every Zeus, every idol, every statue will not be here. There will be one God that is worshiped all over this land, all over the West. It will spread like wildfire. The message of Christianity, the message of the God who is there, who is love, who sent his son into the world to die in your place. It is a hill I will die on. You can kill me, but this is something I will not let go without being said. And I'm willing to die on this hill. And for those of, in the room, those of us in the room who are like, man, I don't know if I would share my faith. It's just not really a hill I would die on. I want you to know the hill that Jesus died on. A hill called Golgotha. Why did he do it? Because just like even the message and motivation of Paul that, hey, I love these people so much, I want them to know the God that is there does not have to be unknown. That the God who is there is reaching out to them and wants them to know. Wants them to know that he's done something for them if they would just accept what he did on the cross in their place and it moved him to die on a hill. It was a hill he would die on called Golgotha. It's a hill that Paul stood before this Athenian group and said, it's the only hill we're dying on. It's the only hill that will last for all eternity. The, all of these gods will fall. And today the one true God is reaching out through the hands and feet of Christ, which Paul was, and you are if you're a Christian, to say this is the message of eternal life. There is no other. And this is the God who is there. There is no other. Can I tell you about him? He wants to be known. And I want to tell you about him. Let me pray. Father, we need your help. We live in a world that every day sends the message that you can talk about everything but religion and politics. We live in a world where it's so quick to either get offensive or tense or any of those things when you bring up the conversation, specifically the name of the one Savior, Jesus.
And so would you move in the hearts of your people, starting with me, and inspire courageous faith? Would you move us to act? Would you make us winsome engagers as we move in conversation? I pray for my friends in the room who have never shared their faith before ever. that you would allow whatever barriers exist there, whatever uh, personal wirings, introversion, whatever it is that holds them back from wanting to say something, whatever fear of uh, making something uncomfortable, fear of the person having questions they can't answer, whatever those obstacles would you win, take them down in the way that you took them down in the heart of Saul, who you converted to Paul, who changed the world. Father, we thank you that we worship the one true God without an thousand years will still be enthroned and worshiped either uh, in this life or in the next should you return. Would you win inside of the city? Would you start a revival and start with this group and unleash your people and the message and the hope of eternal life that is found in Christ alone? We worship you in song. Amen.